the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything on your heart. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching Daniel chapter 5. Um, I, I was just thinking, the Lord, this morning as I was out with him, thinking, you know, to, to be able to teach chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, some of the the most fun chapters, exciting chapters to teach in all of Scripture. So tonight... Um, Daniel predicting the overthrow of Belshazzar's kingdom. And then uh, next week, Daniel in the lion's den. So good, good stuff. And of course, tomorrow is Thursday. That means Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Okay, let's get to some questions while we await your phone calls. The first question uh, is from our email inbox from Kelly. She says, hi, I have two questions. First, the crowns we will receive in heaven. I assume some will will receive more crowns than others. Will people be ashamed or jealous of those that receive more? Kelly, um, I'll answer that one first before even going into the other one. Uh, The answer to this to me is absolutely wonderfully freeing. It's glorious. Um, Yes, some people will receive more rewards in heaven. And I don't have any scripture to really back this up, but I think the idea there is that our capacity to enjoy our closeness to Jesus will be enhanced by the things that we did here. And, of course, the crowns that we receive will be crowns of righteousness, um, um, just crowns based on the works that we did that had the right motive. We did them uh, just for Jesus, Nothing, expecting nothing for us. Uh, these crowns, uh, will be cast at the feet of Jesus, and and um, um, just the crown won't mean anything once we receive it, except for the opportunity to throw them down at the feet of Jesus and, and just say, Lord, it was all you all the time, uh, and he will get glory. Now, as to your question, will people be ashamed or jealous of those that receive more? The answer will be no. Now, I know that seems impossible based on what we know about human nature here. But you see, when we receive those crowns, we will not have a sin nature left. We will have already received our glorified, resurrected bodies. John writes that our lowly bodies will become like his glorious, physically resurrected body. 
uh, and, and there just won't be anything like shame or jealousy or anything. Now, it's, it's, there's going to be loss. First Corinthians chapter 3 talks about suffering loss. And we'll be aware of the loss. We'll be aware that, that there were more crowns and that we lost out on some. But at the same time, once we're aware of that, we deal with it, all of that will be gone. And jealousy, um, shame, um, envy, all of the things that we would naturally associate with, well, somebody got something that I wanted kind of thing. Uh, all of that will be gone. And I love that, Kelly. You know, I can't imagine being without a sin nature. I think about it a lot. I hate my sin nature. I hate that I, 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 I there's things I want to do that I know I shouldn't do. And I think I hate that there's things that that I, I know I should be doing that I don't do. That just puts me in really good company. The Apostle Paul wrote about his own experience in Romans chapter 7. But no shame, no jealousy for those that receive more. It will be a real holy joy that everybody will have for what we've done with the Lord. That's a wonderful question. Her second question says, those that go to hell will suffer some, will suffer more than others because of what they did on earth. Um, she said, will some suffer more um, than others because of what they did on earth? For instance, will Hitler suffer more than someone who didn't believe in God, but it was a good person? Um, Kelly, uh, the the answer to your question is yes. I'll I'll give you the Bible verse in just a moment. But remember, good is different in heaven. You know, we look at somebody and, and they're 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 a good person, and all that means to us is that they didn't do really evil things. But but Jesus said to the rich young ruler, "Why do you call me good? There's none good but God." And Jews knew that, and we who are believers should know that. Jesus through Paul, said there's none righteous, not even one. So what we're going to find when we get to heaven, whether we're on the the judgment side or the reward side, we're going to find that there was uh, nothing good in us, and all of the good that came from us came from Jesus Christ. Now, it's true that there are some people that are nicer, there are people that are uh, rule breakers and people that are rule followers. We know that. That's just built into our, our psyche. But um, there is going to be a distinction um, in hell, just like there is in heaven. In the parable of the talents, Jesus said that that um, um, people that, that were faithful will receive crowns, talents, uh, from those who weren't faithful with what they had. Well, in the same way in heaven, Luke chapter, Luke chapter 12, I'm sorry, verse 46 says, um, speaking of these servants, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he's not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready, or does not do what his master wants, will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And of course, Kelly, that's Jesus speaking. So uh, we're all accountable. Um, a guy like Hitler, you brought him up, a guy like Hitler who was given uh, the opportunity to lead a nation and use that for the devil's purposes. Hitler was was clearly demon-possessed. Um He'll be beaten with many blows. Um, and and uh, the, the person that just, well, I'm a good person. I'm going to hope that my good outweighs my bad. Uh, that person is going to be beaten with few blows. But believe me, hell is going to be terrible for both. So, yes, there will be different degrees of reward in heaven. And there will be different degrees of torment in hell. Good question, Kelly. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to our friend Ruben in Seguin on line one. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Ruben. Thank you. I I don't have any questions or anything. I have a testimony. Okay. If I may. Okay. Um, the enemy. The enemy. I oh man. He is such a liar. He's such a liar. And all I'm going to say is that he tried to prevent me 
to go next week to this men's retreat, I fell Sunday. I fell really, really bad Sunday. I just got out of the hospital. They told me that I tore the inside of my thigh. The, there's a ligament that's in there that I tore it, and I was going to need surgery. <laughs> when I got home, I said, no, I started praying. I started praying, and I called my aunt. I said, hey, can you please pray for me? Long story short, within minutes, I could hardly walk. I barely could walk, even with the walker. But within minutes, I felt a tingling all the way from the bottom of my right heel all the way up to the, to my waist. And that, that pain went away. Not the pain hmm. of my legs and my back, but the pain of that torn ligament. And then I started walking better than I did the week before. <laughs> and I Praise just want to Lord. thank God for that. Cause, I mean, because I know, I know, like I said last week, this is not a coincidence that all this happened to me and how the the way it happened. I know that there is something waiting for me and I know that it's going to be life changing. And I know that I know that I know that that God has something for me and I'm going with an, ex, with an expectant heart and an expected spirit that something is going to happen. Something supernatural. I don't know, but I just know it. I'm so excited. I just, I just, I can't, I can't, uh, you know, <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm like a kid who's going to Disney dance for the first time. <laughs> you know, that's Bless your literally heart. how I feel. Literally how I feel. But uh, uh, just one quick question, and then I'll get, I'll get off the line. Uh, other than clothes, obviously, and my Bible, uh, do I need to bring like uh, notebooks, take notes, pens, and all that? Uh, yeah, you, you you bring your Bible and bring something to write on, and um, uh, everything else I think is handled by the retreat center. So just bring you. Okay. The weather's warm, so you don't after. have to bring bring extra clothes. <laughs> Great. Great, Ruben, I'm, I'm looking forward so to it. I'm looking. I'm looking forward, to, forward to it. I really am. Thank you, sir. Good. God bless you. Thank you, Ruben. God bless. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We had for those of you who weren't. Uh, with us last week, um, we had somebody in the church who who uh, offered to pay for Reuben to come to our retreat, which begins next week. And by the way, if anybody out there wants to come, uh, we've still got some room. Uh, it's very reasonably priced, but this person in our church agreed to pay for Reuben. And when we told him, he was so thrilled. And, and you can obviously hear the gratitude in his heart. We're, we're expecting. I, I want everybody to go, not just Reuben. I want everybody to go with an expectation that Jesus is going to meet him there. Jesus is going to meet him there. And um, boy, when Jesus touches a heart, that's a heart that stays touched. Thank you very, very much, Reuben. I appreciate the call. Here is a question from Michelle. She says, is it proper for a congregation to speak in tongues all at the same time? Now, Michelle, I don't know if you've been listening to my Bible studies, but the answer uh, on Sundays, we've been in 1 Corinthians chapters uh, 12, 13, and now 14. And I talked about that Sunday, and I'm going to continue to talk about that a little bit this week. Uh, But the answer is no. It's not proper for a congregation to speak in tongues at the same time. Paul says in the the, the corporate body, um, when time is given uh, to allow the gifts of the Spirit to flow, that if that time is provided, two or three at the most, not everybody, but two or three at the most should speak in a tongue, and then there has to be an interpretation of that tongue. And if there's no interpretation of the first tongue, then there wouldn't be any others. But there's absolutely no place, Michelle, for um, the, 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 the crazy abuse of the spiritual gifts that we see in so many of our churches. To walk into a church and have everybody speaking in tongues at, at the same time, Paul says, well, if somebody comes in and you're doing that, he's going to think you're all out of your mind. And and that's just a misuse, a childish misuse and abuse of the spiritual gifts. Tongues, I said on Sunday, Michelle, is important for our private devotional life. As it relates to the congregation, relatively speaking, it's very unimportant. It's, it's an edifying gift. It's a vertical gift. 
Paul says the, the man and the woman who speaks in tongues doesn't speak to other men, but speaks instead to God. It's a vertical gift, and it's a gift that enables us to, to have a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. But other than that, there's no horizontal blessing that comes with that gift. And if you are in a church, Michelle, where everybody's speaking tongues at the same time, you're in an out-of-control church, a church that is abusing the spiritual gifts, and one that certainly uh, I couldn't recommend um, for anybody. So thank you for asking, Michelle. Uh, Again, I'm going to be doing more on tongues uh, this coming Sunday here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. You can watch it at calvarysa.com, Michelle, if you're still curious, if you still have any other questions. Here's a question from Debbie. Pastor Ron, do you believe ghosts, like in haunted mansions, are real? Debbie, the answer is no, I don't. Um, um, I think our minds can play tricks on us. I think we're uh, predisposed, many of us, to believe in all kinds of paranormal things. Uh, We've got it on television shows, reality shows. Uh, We've got it on all kinds of things. But no, um, it's appointed that a man wants to die and then face the judgment. And that means when somebody dies, they are in the abode of the dead or they are in heaven with Jesus and there's no other choice. Now, I do believe, Debbie, that demons and and the devil, I think they take advantage of our fears. I think they try to frighten us, to be sure. Uh, I believe that they manifest themselves um, in a way that's that's intended to, to frighten us to the point of being useless in our service for the Lord. But Debbie, there are no ghosts. And one of the problems with dealing with the question like this is the people that do believe in ghosts say, well, I saw one or I experienced one and I know it's real. There's a lot of things that are real that aren't from God. And while ghosts aren't real, demons are. So uh, if you're in a situation, Debbie, where you're having apparitions or you're hearing noises, um, that's simply the enemy trying to mess with you. And and uh, if you are a believer, and I always make that assumption when people uh, call in or send in questions, if you're a believer, the enemy is trying to use that uh, to, to help you lose your way. That's his job, to kill, to rob, to steal, and destroy. That's his job. And what Paul always says is he's good at his job, too. So, Debbie, uh, those are not real. By the way, I would say the same thing about UFOs and and um, people that say they've seen outer space people, people from other planets. Uh, it's just not true. It's the enemy who's trying to mess with us. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Irene. He said, Jesus said that we are supposed to keep the Sabbath. What right does Paul have to change it? Well, Paul didn't change it, Irene. Now, Paul, you have to remember, was writing with the authority of an apostle. Uh, Paul created doctrine. The apostles did. Um, first century church, they didn't have a Bible, so God uh, appointed these men to be his spokesmen, his ambassadors, and he gave them supernatural um, uh, abilities, uh, doctrinal insight. Um, he used them to effectively communicate to, to Christians in a world that was changing very quickly. Uh, he gave the church those men uh, to serve the same function as our Bibles now do. So um, um, Paul has the right to change it, the authority given to him by God. Now, when I said it wasn't really Paul that changed it, I said that because it was Jesus who changed it. Now, two things that you need to remember. When Paul, or I'm sorry, when when Jesus said that we have to keep the Sabbath, we need to remember that Jesus' ministry was to Jews, Jews who were under the law. And the Sabbath law, in fact, all of the Ten Commandments and then the subsequent more than 600 laws that would fulfill the law of Moses, um, um, those laws were given to Israelites, to Jews. 
It wasn't written to you, Irene, and it wasn't written to me. So Jews needed to keep the Sabbath because the Sabbath was a very important picture of rest that could only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that we are, Jesus is, rather, our Sabbath rest. So the Sabbath pointed to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. You're talking about the seventh day. And um, that was to Jews. It wasn't to you and it wasn't to me. So Jesus changed it when he basically annulled the Old Covenant. In the upper room, what we call the Last Supper, he picked up the cup, the cup of redemption, and he said, this is the cup of the New Covenant. And what he was doing uh, Irene was establishing uh, a new covenant to replace the old. The old is gone, the new has come. And so when Jesus picked up that cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood, when he died, we entered into that new covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ based on faith, uh, salvation by grace, and that's all we have to remember. So Paul didn't change it, Jesus did, but Paul additionally had the authority to change it because he was given that authority from heaven himself. So Irene, the Sabbath day, Jesus tried to communicate to the, the Jews who were always accusing him of violating the Sabbath. They were always trying to, to, to trap him into healing somebody or doing some miraculous thing on the Sabbath so he could say, he broke the Sabbath. And Jesus looked at him and he said, you guys don't understand anything. The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. And they had it the other way around. So they are the ones who had the Sabbath and its teachings completely wrong, not Paul. Speaking of Paul, here's a question from another Paul. I trust it's not Paul the Apostle. Paul said, Pastor Ron, will Christians be persecuted before the Great Tribulation? Um, um, yeah, we, we, we already are being persecuted, not so much in this country, Paul, but uh, Christians have been persecuted throughout history. Um, so, so persecution is nothing new. Uh, let me recommend to you a, a book. Get the, get the modern English version. The old English version is very uh, laborious reading, but it's Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, and and it tells some of the wonderful stories of martyrs. And in the book of Acts, in chapter 7, Stephen was the first of the disciples who would be uh, martyred for their faith. So, yeah, Christians uh, have been persecuted throughout history. Um, that's going to continue until we're taken up to be with Jesus um, at the rapture of the church. Uh, will that persecution get worse? I think, Paul, for Christians in the United States of America, and I think if anyone's honest at all, they'll admit that that uh, we Christians in the West, especially in America, uh, we have had it easier than any Christians who've ever lived at any time on the face of the earth. Since Jesus was crucified and resurrected, um, Christians have been giving their lives. That's not been the case in the United States. I think we've become a little bit soft here in the West. And and um, um, so the idea of persecution is so offensive to us. But here's what we need to remember, Paul. Um, things are going to get worse. People will hate you on account of me, Jesus said. They insulted me, they will insult you. Paul said people will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. People will be given over to evil. And we Christians are going to be persecuted in this country for the first time ever. And I think we need to be ready for it. If Jesus doesn't come right away, we need to be ready for that. And I just don't think, Paul, that many churches are equipping Christians uh, to to deal with persecution. You know, we think it's persecution uh, if somebody closes our church or we think it's persecution if if uh, you know somebody doesn't like us at work it, persecution it's what all of the apostles faced by the way all of them saved the apostle john died for their faith james of course one of jesus's inner circle being the first of the apostles to be um uh, martyred for his faith 
Um, so I think persecution is just a fact of life. It's something that's always been around. I just think we in the United States have become so spoiled by the lack of persecution that we don't even recognize it. You know, we think it's persecution if a college professor makes fun of us because we're a believer. That's not the kind of persecution that the Bible is talking about. The persecution the Bible is talking about uh, is coming, and, and we'll see the end of that persecution uh, when the Antichrist is revealed. We won't see it because we'll be in heaven with Jesus, but, but those who are left will see uh, the extent of that persecution. Uh, anything other than bowing down and worshiping the Antichrist is going to be met with death. So, Paul, we're already being persecuted. Uh, here's a question from Jake. Um, Ezekiel, we're at the end of the pro, or the first half of the program. Oh, in fact, I'll have to wait for Jake's in a moment. Hey, remember, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5, uh, the takeover of the Babylonians by the Medo-Persians. A great, great story. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Scott. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Would you comment on Exodus 10 and 12? Uh, specifically in Exodus chapter 20, where the plague of darkness lasted three days. Is that a symbol describing the time between Jesus' death and resurrection? And regarding Exodus 12, when the Hebrews put blood on the door frames before the Passover, what is the significance of the blood? Also, are the firstborn that are killed in Egypt a representation of what Jesus would do on the cross for us later? Um, Scott, good questions. Thank you. Um, uh, the, the plague of darkness, it lasted three days. Uh, you know, the, the, the Bible is filled with pictures or types. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a, obviously a plague of judgment. And, and of course, um, it, it turned dark uh, in the days uh, when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And I think there are people that stretch that to be a type of Christ or a picture of Christ. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I'm a big type guy. So uh, I think that would be extending uh, the type just a little bit too far. The, the three, uh, the, the hours of darkness that, uh, that that engulfed the world. And it was a worldwide darkness. Darkness you could feel. Uh, I think the the Exodus example was was nothing more than a picture of that kind of darkness. Uh, the darkness in Egypt was a darkness you could feel. As, as well, and I think that's just a picture of of um, sin. Um, you know, when you turn away from Jesus Christ, you're you're living in the dark. Uh, John said that to, to walk with Him, we have to walk in the light because He is the light. So, I don't think it was describing or even necessarily representing the the three days of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, I think if it was a true picture, a true type, it would have been a little bit more specific to the time, hours and hours and days and days. Regarding Exodus chapter 12, um, the, the Jews were to put blood on the door. In fact, everybody in Egypt was to put blood on the door. I mean, everybody knew that's all they had to do. The word was passed to Egyptians and Hebrews alike. It's just that the Egyptians didn't put blood on their doorposts. Um, every firstborn in a family, would have been killed uh, by with the, the angel of death, um, except when the angel of death noticed that there was blood covering the doorpost. Um, that means if if there were some hard-hearted Jews who, who didn't, uh, I'm not going to do that, that's silly or that's bloody, uh, then they would have lost their firstborn too. Of course, the Jews were afraid and, 
and, and Moses gave them direction to put blood on their doorpost. So the significance of the blood uh, is 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 as clear as it can be. Uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. It's the blood that saves. It's the blood that saves. Not not the drop of blood, not the physical red blood, but the blood meaning the death. Without Jesus' death, we can have no life. And this Passover blood, Jesus himself being the Passover lamb, that Passover blood was simply um, a way to escape death. And nothing has changed in all these thousands of years. The only way to escape death in the day that you eat of the fruit of the the forbidden tree, uh, you will surely die. The only way to escape death is by the blood of Jesus Christ. So, uh, yes, it was a picture of the blood that would save us later. Um, But um, the blood has always been the same. You know, we get criticized... um, Scott, a lot, because, oh, your your religion's so bloody. Why did Jesus have to die? He could have done so much more had he lived. No, he came to die. From the moment Jesus was born, traveled through Mary's birth canal, and was born in that manger, from that moment he had one purpose in life. No, he did a lot of things, but all of those things were incidental to the purpose of his life, and that was to die. So Jesus began dying the moment he entered this world and he had an appointment on that cross. And he had to make it. That's the only way that we could have been saved. So it's not a representation uh, as much as it's a picture of what Jesus would do. Uh, We're saved by the blood. Thank you, Scott. Good question. Here is a question from... Jake, he says, uh, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, when does this happen, before or after the Great Tribulation? Um, Jake, nobody knows for sure. And I think the, the, the opinions are divided almost 50-50 on this. I personally believe, and this is just me, and, and this doesn't mean I'm right, because we're not told the time frame specifically. Uh, I think this happens immediately following the Great Tribulation. I think it'll be one of the things um, that sort of shakes out as the world tries to deal with the disappearance of of these uh, multiplied millions of Christians. And as the world is in a state of chaos, uh, it's going to provide an opportunity for some really bad people uh, to try to take their country, uh, try to take uh, take the country of Israel. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 is, is, um, is going to be um, a miraculous delivery of Israel. Now, we've had people say, well, that's already happened in um, 1967 and in 1973 in the wars. No, Ezekiel 38 and 39 hasn't happened yet. But I think, Jake, it's going to happen after the Great Tribulation, I'm sorry, after the rapture of the church, but at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. So that's when I think there are some people who think, no, we think that we're going to see Ezekiel 38 and 39, and then as we're, we're, we're thinking about this, then we'll be raptured, and then the world would be plunged into the Great Tribulation. So um, my personal thought is after the rapture, at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, um, but as I said, people are divided on the timing of that, and there's no way to determine uh, with any certainty about when that's going to happen. But but for sure, it's going to happen uh, at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. The question is before or after the rapture, the rapture. Thank you, Greg. Or I'm sorry, Jake. Here's a question from Greg. Do you think there will be any additional books to our Bibles in the coming days before the rapture? Um, Greg, no. The, the Bible is a closed canon. Um Revelation is pretty clear. If you add or subtract uh, anything to this book, the curses in this book will fall upon you. And while some people say, well, that's only the book of Revelation. No, um, the, the, the book is, is closed. Uh, Jesus has said everything. He told his disciples, I have more to tell you, much more than you can now bear. Um, but when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will lead you into all truth. And part of that truth is the Bible that we now have God's perfect, inerrant, uh, infallible Word of God. So uh, no additional books. 
to our Bibles in the coming days. The canon is closed. We don't need a single thing. Jesus is God's final word. The Bible is the word of God that reveals the person of Jesus Christ. So uh, no more additional books to be written. We have everything that we need, everything that we will ever need. It's an inexhaustible treasure. Um, No more to be added. Thank you, Greg, for the question. Wanda says, is it okay to pray directly to Jesus even though he said we should ask the Father? Wanda, the the answer to your question is yes, it's okay. Um, You know, we we have a, a human idiosyncrasy you know we 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 are we like are in competition um we want to do better than somebody else we have a way of doing things want other people to do it our way remember the father's god jesus is god the holy spirit's god so it doesn't matter who you're praying to jesus and i always talk to and about jesus that's just the way i'm most comfortable jesus said that his job was to reveal the father um, you and I, Wanda, we can't imagine the Father in heaven. Uh, he's not. He doesn't have a body like Jesus does. Uh, he lives in unapproachable light. I mean, think about that. We we can't even imagine the person of the Father. Well, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. So uh, Jesus, because he had a flesh and blood body, we can relate to. So we can we can imagine Jesus. We have a, a, a book that tells us who he is. Uh, but the Father, not so much. And I think sometimes um, we, we sort of get lost a little bit when we're praying to the Father. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with it. Jesus said uh, up to this point, telling his disciples, you've asked nothing in my name, but now ask the Father in my name. Jesus was just saying there that that he has given us access to the Father. He he didn't say, nor did he imply that that the way to pray has to be to the Father. He didn't say that at all. So remember, there's no competition. The Father's God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And uh, what I would say is just pray and pray to whomever um, you feel like the Spirit is leading you to pray to at that time, as long as it's Father, Son, or Spirit. And if you want to use the general God, uh, just remember that Jesus is the one that gave you access to God. Jesus is the one that opened that door so that we can ask anything in his name and according to his will, and we know that we have what we've asked for. So, Wanda, um, it's perfectly okay to pray directly to Jesus. Uh, it's also okay to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, and it's not a formula. It's just in the name of Jesus simply means that Jesus is the one that provided us the accent. I also believe, Wanda, and I don't really pray to the Holy Spirit uh, all that much, but I say every morning, good morning, Father, good morning, Jesus, good morning, Holy Spirit. I want all three persons of the Godhead active in my mind and in my heart. And so in cases like that, I'm... I'm um, saying, acknowledging all of them, but my conversation, Wanda, is with Jesus all day, every day. So, hope that answers your question. Good question. 340-9585. Here is Scott. Don't know if it's the same Scott that just came in. Some of these questions, uh, we get a lot of questions, and some of them have been here a week or more, so maybe it's the same Scott as before. Scott says, uh, the office of prophet, you say, is no longer, but many people claim they are prophets. How can I know for sure? Well, Scott, this is important. All you have to do is know the Bible. Um, sometimes people are confused with the gift of prophecy. And you see the gift of prophecy spoken of a lot in First Corinthians. We've been talking about it here at Calvary Chapel. But having the gift of prophecy does not make one the prophet. We're talking about the office of a prophet, that's what your question's about, and the gift of prophecy, which is two completely different things. The office of prophet, those the, the Old Testament prophets that we're all familiar with, but remember there are also New Testament prophets. Those New Testament prophets were necessary in their church because they didn't have a Bible. And those New Testament prophets are the ones who wrote our Bibles. And there were others, uh, Matthew, Mark, um, and Luke, 
the Apostle John, um, James, uh, Jude, um, all of the writers of the New Testament certainly were prophets. We also know there was a prophet named Agabus. We know there was a, a Philip who had four daughters who were prophetesses. So uh, the office of prophet was essential in the first century church because they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have somebody to sit down and interpret the New Testament. Then there would be prophets that God sent to the churches and, and, and raised up in the churches. By the way, they would, they would receive that, that anointing. Um, and their job was to, to tell people what God said in response to their questions. You and I, we want to know how to live, what decisions to make. Well, we, well we've got a Bible. We can look it up. We got a concordance, or we got a Bible study program. We can look it up and find out where in the Bible it says this. What should I do in a case like this? Well, they didn't have that, but those prophets were around to speak forth the word of God, but also to foretell the things that would happen. You know, Agabus. The, I call him the dramatic prophet. Scott Agabus. Uh, was uh, was the one who grabbed Paul's belt and said the man um, that that uh, owns this belt uh, is going to be bound in this way uh, when he gets to Jerusalem, and and of course it was a warning to the apostle Paul from their perspective not to go, and so he was foretelling the future as well. That's what the office of prophet did; they both foretold and forthtold. Anymore, um, that office is closed, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, talks about the foundation of the church, Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, the, the apostles and prophets, the foundation of the church. And the language makes it clear that the foundation has already been laid, and the church is, perfect present tense, is being laid. So, Apostles and prophets. Scott, when you find a church where somebody says, I'm an apostle, or somebody says, I'm a prophet, thus saith the Lord, that's when you know you're in a church. It is not biblically based. And um, the way to know for sure is the word. The Bible's the final arbiter of these things, and the doctrines matter a great, great deal. So if you're in a church or listening to people who claim to be prophet. Um, the standard of proving their case is 100% perfection. They can ever be wrong. If they are, they are a false prophet. And none of them will ever own that. Well, you know, um, I'm just human. We can be wrong. When you're speaking for God, you can't be wrong. And that's why it's very dangerous, Scott, to say, thus saith the Lord, or to declare oneself a prophet. So that's how you can know for sure it's simple. It really is. Here's a question from Christopher. How can I convince my kids who don't want to go to church that they should go with me? Christopher, this is when your kids don't get a vote. I don't care if they're living in your house. I don't care whether they're four years old or 24 years old. If you've got kids living under your roof, if you're supporting them, you tell them what to do. Don't convince them. Don't persuade them. You just tell them that's the way it's going to be. You know, after I got saved and, and uh, I was in Bible college, my grown sons would come home and say, look, if you live here, you're going to come to church. And they did. They knew it. When our son Terry moved to Texas, uh, was here for, for almost a year, um, he knew that if he lived in our house, he was going to go to church. And he didn't like it. But we didn't give him the opportunity. He said, look, we're not charging you rent. That's about as cheap as rent's going to be. An hour and a half on Sunday, you're going to be there. And he was. So this whole idea that kids have a vote or a say-so in what they want to do is just really bad parenting, Christopher. You need to let them know who's in charge. And by the way, you can tell them it's not you, it's Jesus. You're Jesus' servant, and you're simply going to make them do what Jesus told you to tell them to do. You know, we don't tell our kids they can go to school if they want to. they got to go. They get a job. We don't tell them, ah, oh, go if you want, don't go if you want. They get fired. Well, in your home, you make the rules 
And you've got to get past the point of trying to convince them. You've got to say, this is the way it's going to be, period. And Christopher, the husband and the wife, and the mom and the dad, really need to be of one accord on this because your kids need to go to church, period. You're going to be accountable to God for how you represented him. And I know how unpopular that is in this modern age of raising children, but God doesn't care. Your house belongs to him. It's his rules. Kids, we're going to church. Be ready. Be on time. No complaining. No griping. You're going. And then take them. So, Christopher, I can't be any more direct than that. Daniel says, are tattoos okay for Christians? Daniel, I get this question probably half a dozen times a year. And the answer is yes, tattoos are okay for Christians. Um, be sure that your tattoo honors the Lord. Um, if if uh, you're thinking about getting a tattoo, examine your heart, your motive. Why do you want it? Uh, is it going to be God-honoring? Um, and then and then go for it. Um, but if you are a minor, Daniel, and your parents say no, then you honor your parents' decision until you're on your own and out of the house. Now, Daniel, I I the only reason I don't have any tattoos, I got two two boys, um, forty seven I think and forty five, and. Um, uh, maybe it's 46 and 48. That's not important. But but one of them has never had any tattoos, never had any piercings. The other one is blasted. I mean, he's got tats and piercings and all kinds of stuff. They grew up in the same home, same parents. They're just different people. The reason I don't have a tattoo is because I'm too chicken because of the pain. I just don't want the pain. And there's something about wrinkly skin that tattoos just don't look so cool on. But but I actually like the artwork. I think it's beautiful. We've got some people here at the church with beautiful tattoos, lots of color. I mean, really works of art. And I like them. And and I, I you know, I'd like to get them, but I'm just not into pain. So I've been trying to convince Paula to get a tattoo, but she's as scared of pain or as averse to pain as I am, Daniel. So we're probably not going to be getting any at our age. But yes, it is okay. Uh, unless you're a minor at home, your parents say no, then you've got to honor your father and your mother. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think we're inside five minutes now for uh, the rest of today's shows. Uh, here's a question from Elaine. Um, I know our sins are forgiven, but why do we still have to deal with the consequences from sin if it's forgiven? Well, Elaine, it is forgiven, but if there were no consequences, we wouldn't learn anything from it. The consequences of sin have to come to bear because if there were no consequences, we, silly humans, we would keep on sinning. So yes, our sins are forgiven, but why we got to learn things from the bad choices that we make. Now, none of us likes to deal with consequences, but the consequences come as a result of the love of God. Hebrews says God disciplines those he loves. And discipline of God is some of the consequences, but there are other consequences. If you do bad things, there are going to be people who just don't want anything to do with you anymore. There are going to be opportunities for, for the devil to, to make people talk badly about you. People are going to shun you or turn your back or turn their backs on you. Uh, those are consequences. And the idea of a consequence is, well, I don't want to ever deal with this again. So, Lord, I'm going to stay right with you and I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to be obedient. Otherwise, Elaine, there's always going to be consequences. And uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, the consequences are a good thing because they teach us to walk with Jesus. Patricia says this. This will be my last question for today. Patricia says, What is meant by another gospel that Galatians 1 says can cause one to be cursed? Uh, Patricia, another gospel is just a gospel that's inconsistent with the gospel of grace that we've been given by the Lord. 
Uh, in the churches in Galatia, there were Judaizers who were trying to take over, uh, forcing um, Jews and Christians both to be circumcised, to follow the Sabbath rules, in effect, to, to be Jewish in order to be a Christian. And, and Paul says that's another gospel. Gospel means good news. That's not good news because those false gospels come with conditions attached. And there's no condition attached to uh, the gospel of grace. Just uh, receive Jesus Christ, be forgiven. He comes to live in you and empowers you to set you free from the bondage of sin. Another gospel is a false gospel. It's what's being referred to. Paul's case in Galatians, he's talking about legalism. uh, But uh, there are all kinds of false gospels. The prosperity gospel, Patricia, is a false gospel. And somebody whose hope is placed in um, a prosperity gospel um, is going to be disappointed. They're going to be crushed um, and they're going to live a, a life basically that's cursed. It doesn't mean that you can't believe in it and be and not that, that if you believe in it, you're not saved. Uh, they're just people that don't really open their Bibles. But uh, if there's a preacher telling you that God wants you to be rich, healthy, and happy, he is a false teacher. And um, that that curse comes upon him. So, Patricia, I hope that's clear and answers your question. It's any gospel or any message that contradicts the message of grace that we've been given, the, the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Remember, Paula, beautiful Paula, will be live in studio with us tomorrow at 4 o'clock on the date day edition of the show. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.